We'll be reading the first eight verses. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, My God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. This is the word of God. You may be seated this morning, and let's pray together as we come to God's Word. Our God and our Father, again, we come to your Word this morning asking you for your help. Help to understand it according to the meaning that you have revealed in it. Help, Father, to accept it as your Holy Word. Help, Father, to be able to live according to what is revealed here. And so, Father, we pray with the words of my mouth this morning with the meditations of our hearts this morning. Be pleasing in your sight as we approach your holy word. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. About 15 years ago, I was at our family doctor bringing one of the boys in for a checkup. And as we were leaving, the doctor, having checked up my son turned to me and said, what about you? And I said, what about me? And he said, when was the last time you had a checkup? I shrugged. He said, who's your current doctor? I shrugged. He said, you don't have one, do you? I shrugged. He said, you probably haven't seen a doctor on any kind of regular basis since you were in high school, right? Yeah. I said, I feel great. I don't really, I don't need a doctor unless I'm sick, right? You don't say that to a doctor. So he started to tell me all the reasons why that was a really dumb thing to say. So I made an appointment and I went in to see him thinking this is just going to yield nothing profitable. And he ran a whole panel of tests on me, did a bunch of exams and ended up after all the results came in saying something like this to me saying, so let me guess. One of your parents has diabetes. One of your parents, at least, has a history of heart disease. And there's probably been at least one cardiac event in one of their lives by now. Yep. Diabetes on mom's side, heart disease on dad's side. His dad died of heart disease. My dad had a heart attack at 53 years old and has had multiple angioplasties. And the doctor nodded and said, yeah, that is exactly where you are headed and then rattled off a whole slew of things that were wrong with me metabolically, and told me that he would be shocked if I lived past 60 unless I started dealing with all that stuff. Now, I didn't want to hear that. 
I didn't enjoy hearing that. There was a big part of me that just wanted to walk out of there and never come back and say, this is why I don't go to doctors. But I remembered how my grandpa's death affected me when I was a little kid, five years old. And I remembered how much my dad's heart attack scared me when I was a teen. And I thought about my kids. And I realized this. I realized that not wanting to hear anything like all of those things that my doctor told me that day was exactly why I hadn't gone to a doctor since high school. Ignorance was bliss. Reality, not so much. But the doctor spoke the truth because that's his job. He spoke it in love. And then he helped me over the next several years to start to address all of those problems so that now things have become much, much healthier for the past 10 years or so. So needless to say, as we come to a passage like this in Hosea chapter 8, it works the same way spiritually that it works physically. Sometimes we go, man, I don't want to hear this. But we need it. For the Word of God is living and active, is it not? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And sometimes we don't want it doing that. No creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are bare and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must all give account. That's what the Word of God does to us. It it pierces down to the deepest recesses of our hearts and exposes all of the ways that sin remains in there. The ways that we don't talk to each other about. The ways that we don't share with each other. The ways that we may not even be aware of ourselves. The ways that we don't want to admit that we still have sinful, prideful, fleshly, selfish attitudes in our hearts and in our minds. This is what it does. And that's not much fun when God's Word does that, right? It's not pleasant for the Holy Spirit to slice into us like a surgeon with the living, active Word of God and and expose all that sin. It's painful to come to terms with the realities of human sinfulness, isn't it? And if we're honest, there's just a lot of times when we just as soon avoid that, stick to the portions of God's Word that say nice things, that make us feel good, that seem happy, but... Sometimes exposing our sin is good and necessary as a part of the process that God has us in to keep pointing us to Christ and our daily need of His grace. We still desperately need the grace of Christ to heal us, to help us, to strengthen us, to be able to put all that sin to death in us and to grow in obedience and in holiness because That is what leads to the eternal rest that is ours in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we don't want to go to the doctor because we're afraid of what the doctor's going to find. But it doesn't make any sense not to go and leave the problems in our bodies undiagnosed, untreated. When a doctor very well might be able to help and heal those problems. So it's even more important, right? because we're talking about eternal souls here, it's even more important to let the Word of God diagnose the problems in our hearts and in our minds, again, in those deep, hidden recesses, 
because, because God doesn't just want to expose all of that to put us to shame. He's the great physician who wants to heal. Remember from chapter 6 last week, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down that He will bind us up. That's what God wants to do, to to show us the ways that we need His grace, that He might heal us and bind us up when we're broken inside. And help us put off all of the deeds of the flesh and kill the sin that remains and put on the righteousness of Christ and continue to grow and mature in holiness as He leads us along the pathway that leads to eternal glory. So yes, the message of the book of Hosea, which remember isn't just a description of ancient Israel's sin and idolatry, it's it's a message that's given to all of us so that we can heed the call that the very last verse in this book gives. We've looked at it a few times, remember? Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know these things. Because the ways of the Lord are right. And the upright will walk in them, but the the transgressors will stumble in them. That's wisdom for all of us because we're all prone to stumbling. Even though we're forgiven and justified, even though we're new creations in Christ Jesus, we still sin. We still transgress God's law and fall short of God's glory. It, It remains in us. So it's important for us to see how, in all of the deep and subtle ways that the Word of God exposes, how sin remains. Not just in the, in the big, obvious, outward things that we do and say, but mostly in the heart of where it all comes from. So that we can turn from it so, and, 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 and kill it, put it to death, and continue to grow. So I pray that as, as uncomfortable as these chapters of God's Holy Word are, that we'll remember that it's all given to us for a reason and that it's all profitable for us in in helping us to see the residues of of idolatry in our own hearts and unfaithfulness that linger in our own minds and our own lives. So last week we focused on chapters 5 through 7, on the inner core reality that God diagnoses in unfaithful Israel that in their hearts... They didn't love God. That's where all the outward sin was ultimately coming from, right? Anything they were doing well even on the outside was just the product of their own selfish, self-righteous, prideful indifference towards God on the inside. And that was also leading to all kinds of things they weren't doing well on the outside. Ways they were indulging sinful desires. And and that's so important for us to see, right? And to have God's Word diagnosed in our own hearts, right? Do we love Him? Or are we also indifferent towards Him at times? This week, in chapters 8 through 10, the double-edged sword continues to pierce down to that division between soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and and to discern the very thoughts and intentions of our innermost selves in order to show that human sin doesn't just tend to disregard God and dismiss God, who is holy and incomparably and unfathomably precious and worthy just because of who He is. On the other side now of that coin, the sinful heart will love and treasure and prize and worship things that are utterly worthless instead of Him. 
And that's the same thing that God diagnosed in that passage in Jeremiah chapter 2 that we read earlier, right? Be appalled, O heavens, be shocked, be utterly desolate. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and instead hewed out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. These are the two sides of the spiritual coin that we all need to see and understand and evaluate our own hearts by. This is what sin does. It forsakes the fountain and prefers instead what we can do instead of what He is and what He does for us. What we can do to hew cisterns for ourselves to try to satisfy whatever we think we need in our lives by our own efforts and according to our own desires. Sin rejects the God who gives freely and relies on self-made idols instead. That's what it is. That's what it does. Self itself, first and foremost, is the definition of what sin is. Self-interest instead of God's glory. Self-importance, self-sufficiency instead of relying on Him and His goodness and grace. Self-righteousness, trying to earn our way into His good graces instead of receiving the good gift of His grace. But also the sinful heart relies on the works of human achievement more than on God's goodness and grace. Whether it's money or material possessions or human achievements, human governments, we think we need all of this stuff more. And so we tend to focus on that stuff more, prize that stuff more. The human heart revels in man-made stuff. That's what these chapters are about. Far more than in God, far more than His goodness, far more than His grace, in spite of how infinitely worthy He is, We devalue Him and prioritize everything else. So, let's survey these three chapters in Hosea's prophecy together today and see how they highlight this sinful human impulse to devalue God and to assign worth to things that are not inherently worthy and how God responds to it, both in judgment and ultimately in mercy. On the heels of everything that we saw in the previous three chapters last week, now chapter 8 begins with this stern warning. Verse 1, set a trumpet to your lips. Now we've seen that kind of language before. In ancient times, remember, horns and trumpets were blown for a number of reasons. One of the most important being as a warning that invasion is imminent, right? An enemy army is approaching and so the watchman on the wall would blow a trumpet to let everybody know. In modern times, we have the emergency broadcast system on TV and on the radio. And we have those sort of jarring alerts that come screeching out of our iPhones from time to time, letting us know that bad things are happening, right? During World War II, major cities had air raid sirens to let people know to hunker down because bombers were approaching. Some cities still have those. Those are all modern equivalents of of sounding a trumpet in ancient times. It's an audible warning that danger is near. And the sobering reality for Israel in Hosea's day was that God Himself was the danger. He was going to 
work providentially through the Assyrians to bring judgment on them, but it was his judgment that was looming. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord, it says, because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. You know what that imagery is, right? Of vultures circling above something that has died or is about to die. Well, that was the northern kingdom of Israel. In spite, again, of the fact that they had been enjoying this kind of lavish season of peace and prosperity for the past 50 to 75 years, but they had transgressed God's covenant. The the one that He made with them, remember, at Mount Sinai through the ministry of Moses when God gave Moses the law and told the people how they were to live and promised them that if they obeyed His law, it, it would go really, really well for them in the promised land. There would be all kinds of blessings from God's hand as long as they lived according to His law. But if they didn't, then instead of blessings, there would be curses, right? The crops would fail. They'd get invaded and subjected to fierce foreign pagan armies. Remember? And do you remember that that when God explained all of this and made this covenant with them, they all in one accord said to God, everything that the Lord has said we will do. But it didn't take long at all for them to renege on their end of the deal. They became unfaithful immediately and, they, and, and their unfaithfulness became, became endemic in Israel. And so now, in His faithfulness, God is making good on His word, on His part of the covenant, to dry up the blessings and to bring the curses. That's what was happening. The vultures are circling now. But in those days in Israel, and, and they were a lot like our days here in America, Nobody would believe it. Things were going well. What do you mean God's mad? Look, we've got all this prosperity. Things are fine. Don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. Peace, peace. When there was no peace. Here, poor Hosea, right? The the prophet of God to Israel has had to, by God's command, take for himself a wife of harlotry. And he's had to raise up children with her, two of them not even his own, because they were products of her unfaithfulness to him. And those children, remember, were given names that all indicated the severity of God's displeasure with their sin. And Hosea has had to endure his unfaithful wife's unrepentant unfaithfulness to him. He's had to go and buy her literally out of slavery in that industry that she was in. And all of that was was in order to picture and proclaim to the people of Israel just how desperately unfaithful they had been to God. And how deeply God hated that unfaithfulness and sin as as a husband unto them. So Hosea has been showing them all of that through the calamity of his own marriage and and he's been telling it to them also by speaking these words of prophecy to them and calling them to turn from their sin because, because the judgment of God is looming over them like a storm, but they didn't want to believe it. Things were good from a worldly standpoint. And now God was saying, well, yeah, but that's all about to change. But they just kind of shrugged him off. I don't, I don't need to see the doctor. Nothing's wrong with me. Now, they'd been through some things before, some pretty intense political things, regime changes, 
coups in the government, kings being assassinated and replaced by the assassins. And they thought, well, you know what, we got through all of that just fine. The sun's still shining, the crops are still growing, we're okay. Why should, why should things be different now? Don't worry. Leaders come, leaders go. We're pretty good at politics in, in our own wisdom and the way we've been doing things. Pretty good at diplomacy and international affairs, right? The Assyrians are rattling their sabers. Well, we can always just sort of endear ourselves to them with some cold, hard cash. That'll buy, buy us some peace. Religion? We got that. We, we got religion made. Not only do we worship God, we worship all kinds of gods. We're good at religion. We've got national defense, too. You say there's a, a threat from outside. Well, look, we've, we've got these big, tall walls surrounding our cities, big, strong fortresses. We've got, we're really good at building things. All the works of their hands, see, was, was what they were pointing to as, as what they were guaranteeing their safety and security and well-being by. And this is what God is confronting throughout chapter 8. And at the heart of all of it is this deep heart sin of self-reliance. Self-help that is no help. So you start to get a sense of their attitude in verse 2. Hosea says the vultures circling, sound the trumpet, and they kind of shrug and say, but God, we Israel know you. We're Israel. We're your people. You're our God. We know you. See? Appealing to their covenant relationship to Him, but they've broken the covenant. Appealing to the fact of their national identity. We're Israel. We're the chosen ones. Right? We're the special ones. Bad things don't happen to us. We're the children of Abraham. We're the disciples of Moses. Lighten up, God. Verse 2 says they were, they were crying out these things to God in response to Hosea's prophetic words. But God's response is that, that what they're actually doing, their actions are completely drowning out their words. And again, don't forget, this isn't just about them and the sin in their hearts. All of this scripture is profitable for us. It's supposed to be a God-given, living, active, diagnostic of our hearts too. Doesn't John say in 1 John chapter 2, we looked at it last week, verse 4, whoever says, I know God, but doesn't keep His commandments, is lying. The truth's not in him. Talk is cheap when there is unrepentant sin reigning in a person's heart and life. That's what God's highlighting here. Just like a husband who says to his wife, I'm your husband, I love you. Why are you mad that I'm sleeping with other women? Why are you mad that I'm always at the bar? Why are you mad that I want to spend time with everybody else on the planet except for you and the kids? I'm your husband. Talk's cheap, right? This is what God's highlighting here. They say they know Him, but it's all just self-delusion because they have rejected the good, God says in verse 3. And in God's Word, here's what good means. It means everything that God defines as good, not what we pick. Everything that, that He says in His Word is good is what is good. And, and the key is, good means everything that objectively, according to God's definition, is worth having, and worth doing, and worth being. 
That's what good is. Everything according to God's Word and wisdom and holiness that is worth having and doing and being. And Israel had rejected all of that. We will have something other than what God gives. We will do something other than what God commands. And we will be something other than what God wants us to be. This is the same kind of thing that all the prophets say throughout the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah 55, Isaiah says that they have gone and spent their money on that which can't feed them, which isn't actually bread, and they've spent all their labor on that which cannot possibly satisfy. It's the kind of foolishness of the sinful heart. We, we prioritize things that aren't actually good according to God. That's what he's diagnosing. Jesus asks, what good is it to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your eternal soul? The problem of the sinful heart is that it has a broken and corrupted sense of worth. Rejecting the fountain in favor of the broken, dry cisterns. Exchanging truth, Romans 1, for lies. Worshiping the creation instead of the Creator who is worthy and who is blessed forever. And so chapter 8 just goes on from this point to show what human hearts like that do instead of trusting God in this life. They plunge into self-reliance in all kinds of ways. And dependence on man-made things and the things of this earth instead of on God and on His goodness. Verse 4 defines the theme. They have set up kings, but not by me. You get it? And, and the, the word they there in Hebrew is, is emphatically emphasized. They set up kings. I didn't give them these kings. They set up these kings. They did it their way. They did it according to their wisdom and their desires. And for the sake of their own goals and priorities and ends, it wasn't by God. It wasn't according to His will or His purpose or His wisdom or for the sake of His glory. The rest of the chapter then just follows that paradigm through. They did this, but not by me. And God covers all of the bases in their lives, in their society, from politics to religion to diplomacy to national defense. They did things their way, but not by God. It started with their kings and their princes, which all started in the first place with their demanding a human king instead of trusting God to be their king. And the Old Testament is a running record of the disastrous history of their king-making, doing things their way, did not go well. All of which, by the way, would culminate, right, at that day in Jerusalem, when the Jewish people shouted, not this man, but Barabbas give us. They didn't want to make Barabbas their king, but what they were doing was rejecting in the most ultimate way possible the king of kings, who they demanded to be nailed to a cross instead of worshiping him and serving him. All their kings in the Old Testament were just, were just puppets that they preferred over the ruler of the universe. They watched cable news too much. They put too much emphasis on worldly politics. They spent more time counting election results than reading their Bibles. 
their confidence was more in earthly rulers than on the one who sits in heaven and does all that he pleases. And that was nothing compared, verse 4 again, to their puppet gods. With silver and gold, they have made idols for themselves. Instead of worshiping Him who alone is the living God, they fashioned these idols. And that all began right right at the foot of Mount Sinai, of all places where God had come down on that mountain in glory. But instead of worshiping Him, Aaron of all people, right? Moses' own brother who was destined to be the high priest of Israel. Instead of worshiping the God who descended on the mountain with glory, he went around and collected everyone's gold and fashioned this golden calf for them to worship. Because everybody got impatient with the true God up on the mountain. And then then later, right after Solomon's reign, when the kingdom got divided because of all the idolatry that festered in Israel, Jeroboam, the first king of this northern kingdom fashioned two golden calves, installed one in Bethel and one in Dan for the people to come and bow down to, instead of going down to Jerusalem and Judah, to the temple to worship the one true God. So they had rejected the good, see? Rejected the worth of God Himself and His sovereign provision and His worship, and instead chosen to serve kings of their own making, and to worship gods that they literally fashioned by their own hands. And so what God is saying is, you've rejected the good, then I've rejected your idols. I've rejected your calf there in verse 5. His anger burns against them, both for rejecting him and for preferring instead these idols. And so he's going to dash all of their idols to pieces. Show them to be as utterly worthless as they truly are. And that's the great theme that he wants us to understand here. It's summed up in verse 7. If you sow to the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. If you follow this sinful inclination of the human heart to reject the good, to devalue him who is truly worthy, and instead to value and prize and love and trust in things whatever they might be, instead of God, if you reject His great worth and invest in what is worthless, that's what sowing to the wind means, then He will tear down your idols, whatever they are, and show you just how worthless they are and unworthy of your love and affection and devotion. And so, again, hit the gas here through chapter 8. It wasn't just their kings. It wasn't just their false gods. It was their political alliances too. Israel is swallowed up, verse 8, because, verse 9, they have gone up to Assyria, which is a wild donkey wandering alone, God says. It's not tethered to, to God's honor and God's law and God's righteousness and justice. Assyria just is a pagan nation that does whatever they want to do. And... Israel would rather put their confidence in Assyria than in God. And so by Assyria shall they fall, is what God is saying. This impulse to forsake God and embrace something else, anything else, extended also into their whole religious lives. Of course, we've already seen God condemning their idolatry, their propensity to fashion these little idols by human hands. 
Verses 11 through 13 of chapter 8 shows it's not just the little idols themselves, these little hand-carved images themselves. It's, it's, this, it's this religiosity that had infested the land too. Self-made religion. Religion in service of self instead of in service of God. This is what characterized them. Just as much as self-made kings and idols and, and, and diplomatic associations. They multiplied altars, verse 11 says, to false gods. By the way, the right way to read verse 11, because it seems a little redundant, right? Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. What does that mean? The right way to read it, given the wording in the Hebrew, is probably like this. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin offerings to false gods, They, Israel, have become themselves altars for sin. So this mass-produced religious idolatry has multiplied all kinds of sin, ritual immorality in their lives, especially in all of the fertility cults of the pagan religions of those times, which involved all kinds of depraved fertility rituals for the worshipers to indulge in. Immorality was coming from all of it. And then God says in verse 13, even when they offered sacrifices to God Himself, He despised it because of the hypocrisy of it and the heartlessness of it, like we saw last week. And so, because they've forsaken Him, He's going to forsake them. They're going to return to Egypt, not literally, not geographically, but but in terms of the miserable situation that they suffered in Egypt before God mercifully delivered them out in the Exodus. That's where they're going to go back to now. Over in, over in chapter 11, God reminds them, when, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But here now, they've, they've spurned that love. And instead of loving him, instead of prizing him as the worthy one who he is, they've retraced their steps all the way back away from the freedom that he gave them into the bondage again. Straight back to Egypt, so to speak, where they lived in bondage and misery for those 400 years. So the bottom line is this. Whatever party they've been enjoying in this sort of self-serving licentiousness of their sinful hearts, spurning God, spurning His worthiness, preferring the things that they do instead of the things that He gives and commands preferring the things that they fashion with their hands and do by their efforts according to their wisdom for the sake of their desires, whatever party they've been enjoying in all that, God says, party's over. Verse 14, chapter 8, For Israel has forgotten his Maker and built palaces. Judah has multiplied fortified cities. See, that's where their confidence is. No one's going to break down our walls. God says, oh yeah? First Kings says, that when the Assyrians came, there were 46 fortified cities. And the Assyrians did away with them in a matter of weeks. They thought they were safe. They thought they were secure in this world by the work of their own hands, building palaces, fortified cities, protecting themselves from any and every danger that's out there. But they did all of that out of hearts that were not confident in God, but instead were confident in self and what they could do without Him. 
And so God says, I'm going to tear it all down. If you sow to the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. If you invest in vapor, in things that are ultimately worthless eternally, then you will reap the fierce gales of the wrath of Him who alone is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. That's the message here. Chase it into chapter 9 with me. This chapter focuses on the reaping that those who sow to the wind will realize. They think that all of their self-sufficiency, they think that all of their self-reliance that undergirded all of their politics and religiosity and foreign policy and national defense in chapter 8, they think all of that gives them cause to rejoice because they feel all safe and secure by the works of their hands, even though they've utterly devalued and forsaken and rejected the sovereign God of creation. But I mean, come on, how rational is this? How safe would you feel in the biggest, deepest, most fortified bomb shelter that human ingenuity could possibly devise if the omnipotent, almighty, holy God of the universe had set his sights on you? Doesn't matter where, there's nowhere to hide. So don't rejoice, Israel. Don't feel safe and secure in the works of your hands if you have not honored the Almighty God of creation. Rejoice not, O Israel, just because you're Israel, just because you're descendants of Abraham, disciples of Moses, when the reality is you have forsaken your God who is the fountain of living water and hewn for yourselves those broken cisterns, politically, religiously, economically in this world. And so the emphasis on chapter 9 is that those who have sown to the wind will reap from God. Now that he has sovereignly indicted them and made his case against them, here comes the sentencing. And the punishment fits the crime. That's chapter 9. Having abandoned God having forsaken the fountain, having gone astray from him and and preferred the works of their own hands, having trusted and relied upon kings and princes and political alliances and pagan nations and their own efforts to defend themselves and all of that stuff, now they're going to get, because he's going to give them, they're going to get what they wanted. They're going to get life without him, left to depend on their own abilities apart from him. His presence, His protection, His providence. How do you think that's going to go? Well, again, they shouldn't be rejoicing. It's not going to go well. Relying on their own strength and their own abilities isn't going to get them anywhere. Verse 3, they're not going to last long in the land where they felt safe and secure because of their self-reliance because in reality, it's not their land in the first place, right? It's His land. And without Him... Having forsaken Him, having rejected and turned from Him and put all their trust outside of Him, they shall not remain in the land of the Lord, the land that is His land. Their their national security won't remain secure now that they've anchored all of their confidence and hope and security to something other than God. And see, again, how about our land? How about our lives? This is invaluably relevant truth for every single human being who is made in God's image, and for every nation, including our nation, 
that exists in the world that he created, that he reigns over in divine, sovereign, omnipotent justice. Do you think, do you think that America has some special favor with God such that we can just keep on rejoicing for all of the good times in spite of our corporate rejection of him and his holiness and his truth? And our collective preference in America for self-reliant, self-sufficient, self-indulgent idolatry and immorality of every kind. Who needs to do things God's way when things are going so great doing things our way, right? You think we've got some greater claim here in America to God's ongoing blessing and favor than, than Old Testament Israel had as his covenant people? You think our national sins are worse or better than theirs? Somehow they were more unfaithful than we are? Somehow we can expect more earthly blessing from God than they could? Nope. The Almighty, Eternal, Sovereign, Holy God hates sin. Period. And He will make every wrong right. We're not safe just because we're America. Just because for the past 250 years things have been relatively peaceful and prosperous here in the land of the free and the home of the brave. God is not pleased with our corporate abandonment of His truth, of His law, of His will, of His glory, our forsaking of Him for our own self-indulgent idols and self-reliant efforts. Whatever it is, that we have anchored our hope and confidence and security to more than Him, one day He will tear it down. That's the application, see? Where do you spend more of your time? At work? Establishing savings in this world? Equity in this world? Putting away other kinds of earthly security? Or at church and prayer meetings? And in fellowship with the people of God, being built up and spurred on to serve Him and seek His kingdom and His righteousness first in His Word instead of on the TV caring about the things of this world. Where's your confidence? Where's your hope? Who do you trust? Who do you love? Now, for Israel, the answers were so obvious that questions didn't even need to be asked. You trust the world, your confidence is in the things of the world, your hope is anchored to the earth, you've sown all the seeds of your time and your effort and your interest and your devotion in the soil of the world. It's all just wind, it's all just vapor, it's transitory, it's ephemeral, it's fleeting, it's passing, it's unworthy. And so God says, if you do that, anchor your trust and hope and love, if you anchor it to the wind, then you'll end up reaping the whirlwind. That's chapter 9. Party's over. The punishment fits the crime. You sow to the worthless wind. You invest in all of this ephemeral stuff and He will give you what you sought by trusting in the vapor. He'll he'll give you the worthlessness that your heart has lusted after. That's Hosea 9. If they trusted in the nations instead of God to the the nations, he'll leave them. Let's see how it goes. That's verses 1 through 3. If their hope has been in man-made religiosity, verses 4 through 6, 
then their souls will never be filled with the true bread that God alone gives. They'll be empty. They'll be spiritually emaciated. They'll experience all that can be expected from from spiritual starvation and malnourishment because they've gone after things that aren't real bread. Verses 7 through 10. They've called God's prophets fools. They've corrupted themselves in spite of God's word, and so they've become detestable to God in spite of His love for them and, and blessings on them. They've rejected the one who had shown them so much kindness and goodness and favor. So, relying on the broken cisterns of their own wisdom and strength, having forsaken the fountain of living water who God alone is, He's going to give them what they want. He's going to forsake them. He's going to leave them in the godless state that they've cultivated. Verses 11 through 14 of chapter 9. Their glory will fly away like a bird because it came from Him, but they've forsaken Him. They'll wither, they'll dry up, Because whatever life they've enjoyed only ever came from Him. Now they've turned their back on Him. And so they'll be left with nothing. You want life without God who gives life? God says, here you go. Here's the life you've longed for by rejecting Me. Now you're going to choke on it. Those are strong words, right? Uncomfortable words. God's words, nonetheless. They are more true, they are more real, they are eternally more important than those words my doctor spoke to me 15 years ago. That no matter how much I didn't like or want to hear it, let alone do anything about it, the reality was, the reality was I wasn't healthy. My weight was excessive, my blood pressure was too high, my cholesterol was too high, my blood sugar was on the verge. All of that was conspiring together for the metabolic perfect storm of impending disaster. You want to live this way? (laughs) Then there's going to be consequences. That was my doctor's message 15 years ago. Not to shame me. Not to make me feel bad about myself. But to plead with me to do something. To turn from all of the self-indulgent habits that got me into that, that metabolic mess in the first place. To explain to me the reality of how it works physiologically with these bodies that we live in. And see, in a spiritual way, that's, that's exactly God's message here. They've sown to the wind. They've indulged in worthless junk. And now there's going to be consequences for trusting worthless things more than the eternal worthy, worthiness of God. So again, how about our hearts? How about our eternal souls? Has not God been kind in creating us in His image, in sustaining our lives, even though we've gone astray from Him? And especially Christians in in seeking and saving us as the Good Shepherd who He is, has not God been kind to us? So how much devotion do we render to the One who has been so kind in Christ Jesus? To say nothing even of all of the things that He does for us on a daily basis. The words from God that Israel had to hear because of their ongoing negligence of their spiritual health, in spite of God's goodness to them, they were devastating words. 
My God will reject them because they have not listened to Him. And so they shall be wanderers among the nations. That's hard truth. The only security they ever had in reality was because of God's loving, gracious providence, but reject Him and you reject all that He gives. And that's exactly what they did. They took their national success, their comfort, their safety, their security, they took it all for granted and audaciously assumed that in the self-reliant pride of their own hearts, that they enjoyed what they had because of something special about them or something that they did or were capable of doing. And whenever creatures have the audacity to say to their Creator, I have no need of you, then He's fully justified in saying to them, okay then, let's see how you do without me and give them what they want. You do not want to say to your Maker, I have no need of you. And you most certainly do not want him saying, well, okay then, and give you what you want. And see how you fare on your own apart from him. This is what chapter 10 is all about. Verse 2, their hearts are false. Verse 3 shows how pathetically true this all is for Israel. They've clamored in their lack of trust in God for earthly kings. They've made kings without him according to their own wisdom and ways and for their own ends. And now that it hasn't worked out for them the way they wanted, they say, oh, we have no king. And even if we did, what would he do for us, see? We've seen their self-importance, their self-reliance, their self-sufficiency, and it's all gotten into them to this place where where all they're left with is self-pity. Poor us. These kings that we have are worthless to help us, even though these are the kings that they installed and made without God. And then God just proclaims the sentence that comes from the verdict that those who sow to the wind will reap the whirlwind. Those who trust in worthless things will receive and become worthless things. You'll get what you deserve and you'll get what you ask for. You want earthly kings instead of God? You want to stake your hope to earthly rulers and governments instead of to the eternal sovereign king of kings? You spend more of your time and effort and energy, you give more of your attention and focus and concern to worldly rulers than to the sovereign one, you'll get what you want. And it won't be what you hoped for. Samaria's king, verse 7 of chapter 10, no matter what kind of oak tree they thought he was, will perish like a twig on the waters. That's the picture. He's a big oak that nobody will knock over. Actually, God says... He's like a stick floating down a rushing river. You want to pin your hopes to the world's religions and philosophies and wisdom? Everything in this world that tickles the ears and makes sinful human hearts feel good? Then the holy God, verse 8, will tear down all of those high places. Destroy all of the idols of your heart and make you wish you'd never put your confidence in them in the first place. You want to hang your eternal security on something you did when the only thing by nature that we're capable of doing is only evil all the time? That's the theme that runs all the way through the end of chapter 10. Summed up. Look at verses 13 through 15 at the end. It sums it up. You have plowed iniquity, so you have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies, 
because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people. All your fortresses shall be destroyed. And they were. Thus shall it be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall utterly be cut off. So to the wind, reap the whirlwind. Painful, I know. The punishment of rejecting the fountain of living waters will fit the crime. You want to hew out broken cisterns that can't hold water? Your life will consist then of emptiness, destruction, and desolation as all of the worthless things that you've put your trust in betray you and fail you and prove to be as unworthy of your confidence and trust as they actually are. Wow. But once again, as we continue to see through and through in God's Word, the living, holy God who speaks these truths to us like the great physician He is, isn't just intending and desiring to leave us here in hopelessness and despair and desolation. But He would point us forward, even in these verses, even in these chapters, to the One who is worthy and to what He does to save sinners such as these, such as us. Hosea, doesn't he, gives us a divinely revealed clue about what God's going to do to turn sinners away from the worthless things that they have foolishly trusted in, away from all the hand-hewn broken cisterns, and back to himself, the fountain, the source of living water, which if you drink it, will give you life everlasting. So just look, we're, we're out of time, but look at these words from the God who is as unchangeably loving and merciful as He is holy and just. Look at these words in verse 12 of Hosea 10. Instead of sowing to the wind, sow for yourselves righteousness and you will reap steadfast love. So break up your fallow ground of your hearts. For it is time to seek the Lord that He may come, that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. Because you don't have any righteousness of your own. And so God says, I'm going to fix it all. I'm going to make it all right. And not all by justice, but by this great mercy where I will pour out from heaven on you that which you do not have in yourself. He, the living God, will do for sinners what they could never, ever do for themselves in their own self-reliant, God-forsaking self-righteousness and idolatry. He will cover them with His own righteousness. Does not Paul say in Philippians chapter 3 that if anybody had anything to boast in, in this world it was Him, right? Hey man, I was a Hebrew like like the, I was one of the chosen ones, God's people, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was blameless as to the law. I was a Pharisee, a Pharisee's Pharisee. If anybody had things to boast in, it was me. But you know what Paul says? I consider all of that to be the nice English translation of the word that he uses in Greek, which is the word skubalon, is rubbish. I considered everything that I had that I counted as gain for myself to be rubbish. It either means the 
trash that is only worthy to be thrown into the burn pit or what comes out of the back end of an animal. I'm sorry, but that's literally what that word means. And Paul says, that's what I consider all of my efforts, my self-righteousness, my gain. I forsake all of it so that I might have the righteousness of God that doesn't come from my ability, but comes from Him through faith in Jesus Christ. You see how Hosea points us straight there? Don't prize your efforts. Don't prize your wisdom. Don't prize your strength, your accomplishments, the things that human hands do and make in this world. Prize your God. Treasure Him who alone is worthy and who alone gives you the righteousness to be reconciled to Him through faith. That is your all in all, being covered by His righteousness as a free gift that is received, not earned, not achieved, but received through faith alone, in Christ alone. Here God, who is holy and just, is at the same time diagnosing the universal wickedness of the human heart that devalues Him, that forsakes Him, who is the sovereign Creator, in favor of worthless things that human hands have made. But He's not just diagnosing. He's also promising to freely give to lost, fallen sinners the very thing that they need the most but are hopeless to possibly ever do for themselves. He will cover them with righteousness that comes from Him. Today, listen, if anyone here still loves this world and the things of this world more than, trusts in them more than, or instead of the eternally holy, almighty, worthy God, if there's anyone here whose whose hope and trust and confidence is anchored to yourself and what you can do, or to the things of this world more than to the eternal God who made the world, then you need to turn from the world, from yourself, and to Him through faith in Jesus. And those who have received already the great grace of God in the righteousness of Jesus Christ that covers us like like rain pouring down in a downpour from heaven, soaking every part of us. So that as God looks at us, that's what he sees us as. Fully covered and drenched with the righteousness of Jesus. So that he says, I don't condemn you because you're clothed in his righteousness. I accept you. If you've received all of that, then then you've got to recognize now all of the residue of the the self-reliant sin that remains in your heart. All the ways that you still prize the work of your hands, the things of this world, more than you prize Him, who alone is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. We've got to turn from the hand-hewn cisterns that we still want to rely on more than Him and head back to the fountain and be satisfied in Him alone. We've got to let Him crush the idols of our hearts. Destroy them, shatter them, break them into pieces and replace them with a wholehearted devotion to Him and His glory. So let's pray together today, having run out of time here. And let's sing, after we pray, of His 
marvelous love to us in Christ Jesus. And then let's come to the table together and receive this grace that He gives us as as spiritual bread and true life-giving drink so that we can be strengthened by it to put to death all this sin that remains in us and to live our lives worthy of Him who alone is worthy. Pray with me. Father God, Your Word truly is a double-edged sword. And when it pierces, it hurts. When it exposes, Father, it is unpleasant for us. Would You help us, though, in light of Your grace by which You say to us, I do not condemn You. Would You help us to see honestly the sin that remains in us, the ways that we don't prize You and value You and trust You and proclaim you worthy in our lives. Would you help us see all of it and hate it even as you hate it? And would you help us to be able to put it all to death and to continue to grow, Father, with our eyes fixed on Christ and being conformed more and more and more into the image of his glory, loving what he loves, hating what he hates, trusting him more, serving him more, seeking first more and more your kingdom and your righteousness. Father, fill us with a sense of your amazing grace and love that empowers and enables all of that, even now as we sing. And may you glorify yourself in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.